Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today's lunchtime talk, an introduction to Charles I, King and Collector, with curator Per Rumberg. Per is the curator at the Royal Academy of Arts. He studied art history in Berlin and London and comes to the Royal Academy from the National Gallery where he co-curated the exhibition Leonardo da Vinci, Painter at the Court of Milan and the Morgan Library, New York. He's also the co-curator of the Great Spectacle, which will be taking place in this room and others adjoining this summer, so do look out for that. In today's talk, Per will introduce the exhibition that reunites Charles I's art collection for the first time in nearly 400 years. He will highlight some of the artists and masterpieces that are featured and touch on the impact of the collection on art and artists at that time. So please join me in welcoming Per Rumberg. Thank you, Amy. Thank you very much for coming. This is the last pre-lunchtime talk, I hear, that we will um, be giving, and also uh, especially in here, because, as you know, we are uh, launching our new campus later this year, and we will have a lecture theatre in Burlington Gardens on the other side. So in the future, um, and I think the details are all yet to be determined, but um, these events will be slightly bigger. So this is quite nice to have sort of a, um, a relatively small group. And um, so what I want to do today is um, talk to you a little bit about the exhibition and how it came together. And I want to do it in three steps, as it were. And I want to talk a little bit about Charles I um, in the beginning, just some dates and so that we all know um, uh, who he was. And then talk about uh, what it takes to put an exhibition together uh, and sort of a little bit of the background in how we um, went about um, to, to, to stage this exhibition. Um, and, and then in the last... In the last and third chapter, um, I want to take you very briefly through the different galleries and sort of introduce you to the layout of the exhibition in case you haven't been. How many of you have been to the exhibition already? Oh, that's about half of you. Um, so that's great. Um, but if you want to come, you know, if you want to come back, or um, we have it in the end, so um, I'll give you a brief overview about so the narrative of how we try to... Um, tell our story. Um, so Charles I, um, he was never meant to be king. He was the younger brother uh, of James I um, and Queen Anne of Denmark. And his elder brother was Henry, Prince of Wales, handsome, attractive, good-looking, and very popular, apparently. And he died, however, prematurely in 1612. So that's when Charles... Um, who was 12 years old at the time, then became the heir apparent. Um, he became king in 1625 when his father, James I, died. Um, and it was a few years earlier, um, when he was still Prince of Wales, in 1623, um, that his love for collecting was born. There was an important moment. So in 1623, he was 22 years old, um, he went to Madrid. It was the only time that he ever... Uh, travelled to the continent, very unusual at the time for a monarch or a monarch to be to leave um, Britain, and it was the only time that Charles I did so, or the future Charles I um, did so, and it was a time of um, religious wars all over Europe, the Catholic, between the Catholics and the Protestants, um, and the idea, the Thirty Years' War, so-called Thirty Years' War, and the idea very much was to... Um, uh, bring together the Habsburg court, the Spanish royal court, and the Catholic Spanish court, and the Protestant um, English um, uh, uh, court. And the idea was to arrange the marriage between Charles and the sister of Philip IV uh, of Spain, whom we see here, um, uh, the Infanta Maria. And so in 1623, Charles, um, uh, Prince of Wales, goes to Madrid to arrange this marriage, um, unsuccessfully, um, for reasons not entirely clear, but the negotiations fail, and he eventually returns uh, to London about half a year later. Um, but what does happen is when he um, sees the pictures 
um, the collection at the Alcazar, the royal palace in Madrid, um, he realizes he had never seen anything of the like. And it is, if you imagine, if you go to the Prado today and you go upstairs into the, um, uh, into the long gallery um, where you have them all lined up, you know, for starting with Titian and then moving along to Rubens and Van Dyck and then going on to Velázquez, that is what Charles I, um, Charles Prince of Wales, um, would have seen. And he was amazed by what he saw and he returned to England thinking that he wanted to surround himself by that splendor. Um, one picture he returns with is this picture um, he's given by Philip IV um, uh, two Titians, among other works. Um, this was a family portrait. This is uh, painted by Titian um, in the 1530s uh, and depicts Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and he was the great-grandfather of uh, Philip IV. So he gives um, Charles, potentially um, a future member of the, of the family, this family portrait. It is the first Titian um, that, would, that Charles would... Um, um, it, it, the first Titian in his collection. Uh, many were to follow. The other crucial... So that was in 1623. The other crucial moment in bringing together this collection... Um, was um, the acquisition of the Gonzaga collection in 1628. Um, in the meantime, he had become king, um, and he was very eager to bring pictures, especially Italian Renaissance pictures, to England. Um, very difficult to find them. They, they, were, they, they are not now e easily available, and they weren't at the time. And he was uh, very fortunate in many ways that um, the Gonzaga, the um, Dukes of Mantua, and were pressed for money, and they needed to sell parts of the collection. And in the end, after years of, um, of, of negotiating, eventually decided to um, sell pretty much all the movable parts of the collection to Charles I. Um, the most um, maybe famous part of the collection uh, was Mantegna's great series of the Triumph of Caesar, nine monumental canvases. Um, i show you one here. Um, it wasn't clear in the beginning that they would be included. Um, uh, Charles was very keen to have them for reasons that we uh, might explore later. And um, eventually, they're not included in the first shipment in 1628. They eventually come to England in 1630. So there's, um, I think, three shipments coming from Mantua, um, full of Renaissance Italian, largely um, Italian Renaissance paintings. And with that... Um, that was a coup for Charles I. So in, in one, um, you know, with one bulk purchase, he had put together a collection almost on par with those of the royal families um, on, on the continent. The Italian and Northern Renaissance pictures was, was one um, part of the collection that he, that he was after and pictures he wanted to acquire. But it was also important for him, like Titian had worked for the um, for the Habsburg, and, and Mantegna had worked for the Gonzaga, he knew that he needed a court painter, somebody who would create lasting, enduring images of him to make him, um, 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 you know, to, to, to create his legacy. Um, every king needs a, um, a court artist. Um, one of them whom he was after was, of course, um, Peter Paul Rubens, um, arguably the most famous painter of his day, uh, and Rubens then does come to England in 1629 on behalf of, the, of Philip IV to negotiate a pre peace treaty between Spain and England, and successfully so. He comes as a diplomat, not as a painter, but he then, um, he, he then he had painted this um, portrait and sent to London already in the, earlier in the 1620s. When he's in London, he paints a picture, which I think we, we will see in a minute, Peace and War, which he gives to Charles I. And he's then also commissioned to paint the ceiling decoration of the banqueting house, um, celebrating the, um, the reign of Charles's father, James I, um, which then arrives in the 1630s eventually. It's all painted on canvas. Uh, he paints it in Antwerp, sends it to London, um, and they're still in banqueting house. Um, and it's one of the great um, legacies that uh, Rubens left in, in England. Um, but Rubens doesn't stay. So, sorry, this is a sketch for the, for, the, um, for the ceiling and banqueting house, the apotheosis of James I. Um, but Rubens doesn't stay. Um, he, uh, he had worked for the Habsburg but didn't stay in Madrid. He, he was difficult to, to tie down. Um, 
But um, eventually, in 1632, the artist who did come was Anthony van Dyck. Van Dyck, who had worked with Rubens in Antwerp, um, who uh, uh, um, then had spent many years in Italy traveling um, and studying pictures, um, and who had made um, a great reputation for himself, and who was arguably the most um, important portraitist um, at, the, at the time, in the 1630s. And it was a coup that he, would, that he agreed to come to work for Charles I. Uh, he arrives here in London in 1632. He um, stays here for the rest of his life. Um, on and off he travelled, but he lived here and he died in London in 1641, very young, at the age of 42. Um, and it was van, Anthony van Dyck who really um, cre- who created this enduring image, this iconic image of Charles I that we remember today. Um, all of which, the four major portraits and many more that van Dyck painted, are in the exhibition for the first time, which is incredibly exciting. Um, and, um, and van Dyck is, of course, one of our protagonists of our exhibition. He has to be. So um, if it isn't Charles I, our real secret protagonist is, of course, van Dyck. Well, this is one of the uh, paintings. We'll talk about it in a minute. Um, uh, one of these um, very, very famous, possibly the most famous and most moving portrait that Van Dyck paints of Charles I. Um, which leads us to the, into the next chapter of um, our, our talk. Um, how do we go about, um, how do exhibitions, how do we start even thinking about putting something like this together? And when I arrived here at the Royal Academy three years ago, it had already been decided that we wanted to do this exhibition. It had been agreed by our um, exhibitions committee, by um, the academicians who um, have to approve of all our exhibition program. And so um, we knew that 2018 um, was our 250th anniversary, and um, we wanted to start 2018 with um, an exhibition that has thus far deemed to be impossible. There was an exhibition in 1972 at Tate, um, curated by um, uh, Oliver Miller. He was then the uh, surveyor of the Queen's pictures. Um, and it brought together many of the contemporary pictures, the 17th century pictures that were painted at the court of Charles I. Um, and Oliver Miller said in his foreword that, um, unfortunately, I mean, the, the exhibition of his dreams would be to bring together the Renaissance pictures together with these 17th century paintings, but unfortunately... Um, it is too complicated to um, get these loans, and it's an exhibition that will never happen. And, and we thought that for our 250th anniversary, it would only be appropriate if we tried to make the impossible possible. Um, and so that, that was what was on my desk when I arrived. And you can imagine. <laughs> and um, so the exhibition is, is a collaboration between the Royal Academy and the Royal Collection Trust, and it is curated by myself and by Desmond Shaw Taylor, the surveyor of the Queen's Pictures. And um, the, my, my, first, um, my first day that I was here, I picked up the phone and I called Desmond and I said, I think we have to talk. And um, we sat down and we were both um, incredibly excited by the prospect of this, potentially, what this exhibition could be. Generations of art historians have wanted to do this show. But we were also slightly... Um, uh, um, you know, it was a daunting, um, uh, slightly daunting at the same time, because we knew how difficult it would be to convince museums like the Prado, the Louvre, the National Gallery, to name but a few, um, to part with one of their most important pictures. The Prado has about 20 pictures, um, formerly in the collection of Charles I, as does the Louvre, um, and they're among their most important pictures. And um, the, the you know, it is very difficult to sort of talk to museum directors. Um, it gets harder and harder to, um, um, to, 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 to get loans for exhibitions because there are more and more exhibitions now. Pictures travel quite a lot. Even if they, um, if they are lent in principle, it is very often the case that either they've just been away or that they're actually not, you know, they're already promised to another exhibition. Um, however, the pictures that we were asking for are the pictures that don't even travel. Every museum has a blacklist of, of works that are so important for their own collection um, that they never travel. And, um, and so we were slightly dreading our conversations. And our first um, journey was... Um, well, what we, what we did know, that, um, however, we had a very good point of departure. So today there are about 400 works that 
we can identify that formerly belonged to Charles I. So that was our point of departure. Half of which, 200, are in the royal collection. Um, so that was good. And Desmond said that the, um, um, the Queen we then um, eventually... Um, uh, the Queen agreed to be our patron, and so we had the full support of Her Majesty the Queen and the Royal Collection Trust. And so we, I knew that, you know, half of the exhibition, in a way, was in place. And when we realised that, we knew that, you know, we might be able to do this. Um, at the very, so when you start thinking about an exhibition, you always um, need a number of key loans, um, works without which, basically, a group of five to ten works um, that form the core of the, of the exhibition um, and that you really sort of try to put all your weight behind to, to get them to, to come. Um, usually, you know, you, you are lucky if you get half of them. Um, here we knew that we needed, so at the heart of the exhibition, of course, we needed to get all of the Van Dyck, these monumental paintings that Van Dyck painted. We had to get, you can't do an exhibition on Charles I as a collector and not get all of the relevant pictures by his court artist, by Van Dyck. Um, he painted four of these, um, of these huge monumental paintings. They've never, ever been seen together. Not even Van Dyck would have seen them together because they were painted for different palaces. And two of them, luckily, are in the Royal Collection, um, usually not lent, but they're Buckingham Palace now. And Desmond said, absolutely, I don't know how we're going to get them out of Buckingham Palace, but, you know, you, you, can, you can have them. And, in fact, it did take us um, weeks to get them out of Buckingham Palace and into the Royal Academy. Um, but the, the two pictures are, are this one here. Um, the, the first picture that, um, that Van Dyck painted when he came to England, the first major commission painted in 1632 for Whitehall Palace, which doesn't survive, but was um, a conglomerate of sort of Tudor, it was a Tudor palace, conglomerate of buildings. Um, the main residence, it had been the main residence of Henry VIII, and still in the 17th century, it was the main resident of the, uh, residence of the king, of Charles I. Um, this was... This hung on the vista of the long gallery at Whitehall Palace. It was the most. It was the royal portrait. Um, there weren't many portraits around. Usually, one each palace had one m major royal portrait. This was the royal portrait for the king's main residence. So, the, at the very heart of the monarchy, this was the portrait. That um, so incredibly important. First picture on Dyke Paints. It was known at the time as the Great Piece because um, it is rather large. Um, it is, what, three and a half metres, um, three metres, three metres tall. Um, and it would have been um, a modern version, as it were, of a very famous picture which no longer survives um, by Holbein, by Hans Holbein, German artist who had um, worked for Henry VIII and he painted a family portrait of Henry VIII and um, Jane Seymour and, and, um, and the parents of Henry VIII um, very nearby in Whitehall Palace, a mural, uh, of the same dimensions, and um, the only they're copies of the Holbein uh, of the Whitehall mural by Holbein. Um, the only if, if you go to the National Portrait Gallery, you see the cartoon of Henry VIII standing there, sort of life size. Um, that was made for that Whitehall mural. Um, so um, that was Holbein's big commission, almost a hundred years early, precisely a hundred years earlier. Van Dyck's big family portrait was this. Um, so we knew we needed to have this in the show, and Desmond said we could. That was good. One down. Um, then he painted two equestrian portraits, um, and they're even taller. <laughs> and um, uh, this one was the first of the two, painted a few years later. Now also, well, now here, but usually also at Buckingham Palace. Uh, this was painted originally for St. James's Palace. Um, and again, Desmond said, fine, it can come. Um, there's a, he painted two equestrian portraits. Um, a few years later, again, he painted this um, picture, which is now at the National Gallery. Uh, or, I mean, it is not, it is not. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and uh, again, um, very important picture. The whole idea of sort of um, equestrian portraits were, you know, for any royal court on the continent, that was an iconography, a type of picture that was very popular, not so in England. So it was the first time that an English monarch was presented, you know, in an equestrian portrait and um, in a monumental scale. Very, very important um, pictures, these two. Uh, this was painted for Hampton Court, one of the palaces that at the time, also a Tudor palace, which was used, used largely for, for hunting 
at the time, which could explain the, the, the completely different mood of this picture and the, and the setting. Um, now at the National Gallery, we um, uh, very early on um, went to sit down to talk to the National Gallery and um, the three major lenders to the exhibition are the Louvre, the Prado and the National Gallery. The National Gallery lent five pictures to this exhibition and um, has been, they're always generous. They've been extremely generous in this case. So we've asked them, um, uh, the five pictures are uh, this equestrian, um, which also for them was very difficult to remove from the National Gallery. The, the frame had to, be, had to be taken out of its frame. The frame had to be dismantled. It came here in pieces. We had to put it all back together. Um, Van Dyck's equestrian, the other pictures are Rubens's Peace and War, uh, again, a picture that doesn't usually travel. Correggio's um, School of Love. You know, they were all incredibly important pictures. Five loans from the National Gallery. So we were thrilled when they agreed to work with us. Um, but we knew that uh, we had to go um, very much in the, in the footsteps of Charles I. Our first journey took us to Madrid. Um, and we had to talk to the Prado. Because we knew that um, most... Um, Van Dyck, portraits by Van Dyck, you know, that most of them are still in the royal collection. Some are elsewhere here. We knew we could bring these together. Um, the, interestingly, um, of the most important Renaissance paintings, um, particularly works by Titian, whom Charles I was very, very fond of, most of those ended up in France and in Spain in the royal collections and are now in the, in the Louvre and the Prado. So we knew we needed Titian. There's not one important Titian um, it left in the royal collection that, that used to belong to Charles I. So we knew that um, we had to beg for Titians. And so we went to the Prado, and um, the Prado um, agreed to lend off their Titians. They lent, uh, lent us two Titians. Uh, this is one of them, very important for us, because, it, you know, um, as I've told you earlier, this is the picture that sort of started the whole collection. Um, uh, they usually don't lend it. It is the first time that this and the other three major titians we have in the exhibition um, come to England since the 17th century. So there wasn't even a monographic titian exhibition that, 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 that showed, included these works, um, which is very exciting for us. Then on our way back, very much like Charles I, from, from um, Madrid, we went to Paris, talked to the Prado um, with a similar task. We had a list of, again, about 20 works and um, trying to negotiate um, the loans in particular um, works by Titian. This was on top of our list. Um, the Supper at Emmaus, um, you know, a picture inspired by Leonardo's Last Supper. Um, of course, Supper at Emmaus, this all takes place in the, um, after the resurrection. But um, if you know the Caravaggio of the, last, of the Supper at Emmaus at the National Gallery, um, Caravaggio would have known this picture. And his is a, um, uh, a modern, modern you know, 17th century um, version of it. Um, this was the most important in the sale when Charles I, or maybe I forgot to mention, but you all know, um, that it all didn't take a, it didn't go, it didn't end well, the story. I should, I should have mentioned that, um, that Charles, um, the civil war breaks out because he falls out with Parliament. Um, he's eventually uh, captured, trialed, found guilty of high treason. He's executed in 1649. Um, and the entire contents of the royal household are sold. Um, among them, the pictures. So it wasn't only the pictures that were sold, it was everything. The, the crown was, was sold. Um, the, the king's crown was melted in. The gold was sent to the mint, and the precious stones were sold off. So the Tudor crown that you see in Van Dyck's portraits doesn't survive. Um, it, it was then, with the restoration 11 years later, um, a, a new crown was made, and that is the crown that... Um, her Majesty the Queen still wears today. Um, but uh, so in the sale, we, there's an inventory of, of these pictures, which is the reason why we, you know, um, we know quite a lot about these pictures and, and where they ended up. And they have prices, which is quite interesting for art historians because it gives you an idea of how they were appreciated at the time. Um, and also we've got a prize for the crown. The crown itself, the king's crown, was valued at £1,100 so that is sort of point of departure. This picture was the most expensive Titian that belonged to Charles I, and it was valued at £600, so half the price of the, uh, of the king's crown, which is quite extraordinary if you consider that its material value, you know, it's a bit of pigments on canvas. Um, 
And the Louvre uh, eventually agreed to send this picture, so this is also in the exhibition. Um, but the, the, the picture that... So we, we knew that we, we, we had sort of the three um, major monumental portraits by Van Dyck, the two equestrians and the great piece, but we, um, we still needed this picture, which is the fourth, uh, which is at the Louvre, a picture that um, we know very little about, it is in none of the inventories. We have an inventory made in 1639 by the curator, by then the surveyor of the king's pictures, Abraham van der Dort, who was a Dutchman. Um, uh, a very detailed inventory of the works then at the time in Whitehall Palace. Um, we have the inventory in the exhibition right at the very heart in, in Gallery 6. Um, without this inventory, we wouldn't have been able to put this exhibition together to know to reassemble the, the collection. Um, it is not in the inventory, this picture. Um, so we know that it wasn't at Whitehall Palace. Um, the other important inventory is the 1649 inventory, made 10 years later, of the sale, of the so-called Commonwealth sale. And it is not in that inventory either. So we know that by that point, the picture had left the country. Um, what I believe... And the picture is so special, it's so moving. This was not a picture that he painted and, and, and gave, or Van Dijk painted and the king then gave away. Um, so what we think, what, what the history, and it hasn't been suggested previously, but it, it, to us it seems um, uh, very plausible, that this picture um, would have been in, in, in a palace not mentioned in any of the inventories, um, that this picture was painted as a replacement for a picture of Queen Anne, um, Anne of Denmark, which is still in the royal collection now, a picture that was painted, I believe, in, the, in 1610 um, by an artist called Paul von, von Sommer, and of the exactly the same proportion, same scale, almost to the, um, to the millimeter, um, same subject matter, showing Queen Anne out hunting with a horse, um, and you see in the background in that picture, you see Oatlands, uh, which was um, the Queen's, one of the Queen's um, palaces, uh, Queen Anne's palace. Um, it then moved, but I think it came back to Oatlands. And we know that that picture then moved, the portrait of Queen Anne moved in the 1630s to Whitehall, exactly when this picture was painted. Um, Oatlands then belonged to the Queen, to Henrietta Maria. Um, also, I haven't forgot to mention Henrietta Maria, but you probably... Um, she's hugely important. Um, he married Henrietta Maria after the negotiations in Spain. The Spanish match had failed. In 1625, he then marries not the um, sister of the Spanish king, but the sister of the king of France. Um, so Henrietta Maria comes to England as a teenager in 1625, um, and, uh, and becomes very important in, in for the collection. And I hope that in the exhibition it becomes clear. We have, a, we have a one gallery devoted to the Queen's house that was built for her and with the pictures that would have hung there. Um, but, um, so another palace. So she is a quite an important figure, um, Henrietta Maria. And one of her palaces was Oatlands, was her hunting um, palace. Um, and you can imagine that um, she, was, she uh, uh, did not want her mother-in-law, she much rather wanted her husband rather than her mother-in-law um, in her, in her in, 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 you know, pride of place in her gallery um, and possibly over the mantelpiece. Um, we don't know exactly how they hung, but um, so that the picture was then moved to his, to Charles's residence, to Whitehall Palace, and they commissioned Van Dyck to paint this for the Queen to replace the other picture. Um, it would then have hung at Oatlands, and it's quite possible that um, when Henrietta Maria then went into exile to France, um, she went first left England in 42, then she comes back briefly and then leaves again in 1644, that this would have been one of the pictures that was dearest to her and that she took with her. And we know that the picture then resurfaces in France in the 18th century. Um, it then ends up in the Royal Collection and um, is now at the Louvre. So this is why this picture, it, it, entirely plausible to me, how it may have ended up uh, in France. Um, very important picture, very moving picture. We knew that we had to have it. Um, it's one of the great portraits that Van Dyck ever painted. Um, and, uh, and the Louvre eventually, it took them a long time to decide, and we're incredibly generous that they have agreed to lend two Titians, 
which they never have. And this picture, which again has never come back to England since the 17th century. So that was sort of the last sort of puzzle, piece of the puzzle. And when we knew, when we heard that the Louvre had agreed to lend this, we knew that we, this exhibition could be um, special. And we decided to hang them all together. If you go, if you have been, you've seen it at the very heart of the exhibition um, in, our, in Central Hall. You know, whichever way you turn, Charles I is looking at you. Um, and, um, and we always try to anticipate that by building little models, and we knew exactly what we were doing. Yet, when these pictures come in, monumental, um, you know, these monumental... You know, it's sort of quite over, it was overwhelming even for us seeing them go up. And um, so we all have them at the very heart of the exhibition. Now, I think we have about... Um, Oh, no, there's one more little, little point I want to make before I, I briefly take you through the, um, the layout of the, of, of the, of the galleries. Um, th it's quite nice to, to have this sort of core group of pictures and very important pictures, and, you know, you try to get, you know, the most important pictures you can, you can get. That's, but to create sort of something special and magic, that, of course, isn't enough. You want the pictures to talk to each other and to create a, a, a magic. Um, there must be a reason, something to learn for us and for everyone seeing the exhibition to, about these pictures, and they have to sort of come to life. So by bringing them together for a short period of time, um, we, we want to create a certain magic, and if they don't talk to each other, we have sort of failed in our, in our mission. And um, so one of the... Um, so there are louder moments in the exhibition, like Central Hall, where we have all these monumental portraits, very important to have them, but there are also quieter moments, which I'm particularly fond and very proud of. Um, and so one um, example um, that I found where we tried to, wanted to bring pictures, in the end we decided not to hang them together because of the layout of the exhibition, but um, we, we create these uh, links, I hope, um, this is the picture, I've, I think I showed you earlier, uh, that Rubens sent in the early 1620s to Charles I. We know it hung in Whitehall Palace in a small gallery um, full of artists' self-portraits. Um, if, if you look at it together with um, Charles I in the hunting field, the picture from the Louvre, you may notice that the, the hat he wears is almost identical to the hat that Charles wears here, and that his pose and the way that he's so slightly turning turning um, and to face us. Um, the pose is almost identical, but in, in reverse. So you can imagine, so the, the, the picture on the left was painted um, you know, about 10 years earlier, a bit more, but this picture was hanging at Whitehall Palace, and you can imagine that the king and his court artist, Van Dyck, 10 years later, walk the halls of Whitehall Palace, and they stop in front of this picture. And either Van Dyck or Charles I, impossible to know, but one of them says, hmm, you know, this is quite a good pose. Do you, you, know, you can imagine Charles saying, you know, do you think you can paint me like that? And or, or Van Dyck just sort of did it and not without even... But, you know, he, he did, you know. And so it's these... And for us, sort of the magic, it's, it's, it's... Because you could argue, why does it matter that these pictures were here in England? Um, some of them for only 10, 15 years. They were, you know, in Spain and France before they have been... It's been in Spain and France ever since. Why does it matter that they were here for these few years? And we think it matters because um, artists at the time working at the court, artists like Van Dyck, would have looked at these pictures and it influenced the way that they were, you know, creating their own work. And, and, and so without this extraordinary group of Titian portraits and without this extraordinary Renaissance collection that Charles I put together, I think, and this joint passion that Charles I and Van Dyck had for Titian and the Venetian Renaissance, without that, the, the image that we have of Charles I would be a very different one. Um, and without that, without these pictures being in England, Van Dyck's portraits, Gainsborough, who's looking at one of the pictures which we have in the exhibition of the children of the Duke of, um, um, Duke of Buckingham, and he uses that in the late 18th century as a model for his blue boy. So you can argue that without Charles I and these pictures that were here, you know, there wouldn't have been the great portraiture tradition in England. There, there wouldn't have been Reynolds or Gainsborough. So um, very important and very important for us here at the Royal Academy, I think. Um, and then um, when I talk about the quieter moments, this is one of my favourite objects in the, in the exhibition. Um, a, a drawing, it's a large drawing, which you find in Central Hall with all these monumental portraits. Um, the only portrait drawing that survives that Van Dyck 
made of the king is a very personal, you know, it's the encounter between the artist and the king. And that's, that's what, for me, the exhibition is all about. Um, and you see here, again, you see the hat, um, which I think is the link between the Rubens and, the, and, and Charles I in the hunting field. Different pose. Um, he, he would have probably made more than this drawing. He usually never made portrait drawings, Van Dyck. Um, with Charles I, he did, because the king didn't have time to sit for him for hours on end. Um, and, uh, and so he would have worked with these um, portrait drawings. There would have been more uh, than, than this, probably, and it is not, it, it is not preparatory for any specific painting. It, it just sort of gave him a sense of, of, the, of, the, you know, of the king's, of the proportion of his, of his face. Um, and we decided rather bravely, I suggested, to use this drawing, you will have seen it maybe, in the vestibule as you come into the exhibition, to blow it up four metres tall, um, as the title image of the exhibition on our title wall. And, and I did not um, discuss this with our marketing department because <laughs> they would have loved sort of, you know, something in colour. And, and I thought, but it is, I wanted to draw attention to the quieter moments in the exhibition. There are plenty of loud and proud moments in the exhibition, but it's these so quieter moments that I'm particularly pleased with and um, not least this um, drawing. But we now sort of blew it up sort of to four metres so that you don't miss it. Um, so I now I think we have about five more minutes, and I just want to before I will um, I'm very happy to answer questions if you have, have any. But I just want to um, take you through uh, before the questions to very quickly run you through the exhibition. We can, I can do it in five minutes um, because um, half of you have already seen the show. But the idea was to um, um, have a you know if if you tell a story. Big question was how do you tell a story like this? This collection coming back together, and we knew that we had to have a beginning and we had to have an end. Um, but in between, I wanted the exhibition to be open so that you can explore all the galleries on your own, and you can walk back and forth and make these, um, hopefully, make these connections that I hope are all sort of there to see. Um, but we knew that we had to start with an introduction, and in the first gallery we show um, this very famous picture. Uh, that Van Dyck painted of Charles I. It was then sent to Rome to Gian Lorenzo Bernini to make a portrait bust. The portrait bust doesn't survive. Picture does, and Bernini kept it. And it wasn't then in the collection of Charles I. It was only reacquired in the 19th century. But um, showing that king in three positions, because Charles had never been to Rome, he had never met Bernini, and Bernini had to work from this um, portrait. Um, and we showed together in this first gallery, in the, in the, right in the middle, um, the Benini bust doesn't survive, but this is the only contemporary bust that survives, marble bust, made in exactly the same year. It's um, in, inscribed here, 1636, by a, by a Flemish sculptor, Dussard, who worked in Rome, who would have seen the portrait um, by, that Van Dyck had painted, made his own version of the bust and sent this to Arundel to the Earl of Arundel as a calling card to um, to work for him successfully. So he then comes to England, works for Arundel, brings the bust, um, bust stays in the collection of, of the um, um, Earl of Arundel, and it now it is now still an Arundel Castle. And when we saw it there, an Arundel Castle is in a, a dark corridor along with many other busts and uh, dimly lit and, and sort of rather dusty. And we were a bit worried if, if, if you know how it would look. Um, but that's sort of the that's the risk you take when you bring these works together. We knew that the triple portrait we had to show it with with with, with a portrait bust, and I'm very pleased of, of the you know the magic that happens between the two. Um, but these decisions you never know until they're actually so in the room. You have to take risks. Um, um, there we show oh, we have one wall in the first gallery devoted to art to all the artists, um, chief amongst them of course Van Dyck, and this portrait from a private collection which you cannot usually see. Um, so it's quite nice, it's important for us when we think about this that we bring together very famous pictures, that we bring um, pictures together that you can't usually see. Most of the pictures in the Royal Collection, some you can see at certain times of the year, but that's, it was quite exciting to make them available you know, here for these three months. And a picture like this, which is in a private collection and, and um, has been exhibited but once or twice before. So even Van Dyck experts, many haven't seen this picture. Um, and, um, and with other um, collectors and courtiers, um, this is the Earl of Arundel, um, whom Dusa made the bust for. Um, this is a few years earlier, in 1620, one of my favourite pictures in that first gallery. Beautiful picture that Van Dyck painted when he came to England, to London, in 1620. He came twice. So he came ten years before, and he painted it. It's now at the Getty, so came a long way. 
But so we started, we start with one room full of portraits of the people at the time in the 1620s and 1630s who shaped the collection, who all of a sudden talked about pictures and talked about attributions, talked about subject matter, so, um, and those who actually made these pictures, the artists themselves. So I, I quite like the idea of starting with a room full of people. Um, and then in the second gallery, um, we basically thought we'd give a sort of, um, as I tried to do in the beginning, a little historical introduction, but um, always with the works specific. You have to tell your story with through the works that you can show. Um, and so this picture um, is a Velázquez, which we show next to Titian, which is very exciting, to remind us that Velázquez was exactly the same age as Van Dyck and as Charles I. They were all contemporaries. And um, Van, uh, Velázquez, of course, was the court painter in, in Spain at the, at the court of um, Philip IV. He had just been appointed court painter when Van Dyck, when Charles I arrived, and he would live longer and then create, you know, paint Las Meninas eventually in the 50s. So you can imagine what Van Dyck, Van Dyck might have done if he had lived longer, but he dies in 41. Um, Velázquez paints a portrait of Charles I, which doesn't survive, um, but this is, as it were, the placeholder for, um, for that, that picture. Um, in that first gallery, we show, we show this together, so we have the, um, Philip IV and his great-grandfather, quite nice together, I think. And um, uh, Credcho, um School of Love from the National Gallery, one of the Gonzaga pictures that arrived in England in 1628. Um, and on the vista, we have um, Rubens's Peace at War, the great um, uh, history painting that he paints um, when you see in 1629. So that first gallery, uh, really, the idea is um, that you close your eyes and you open them and you imagine sort of the Tudor Elizabethan court, and then you open your eyes, and there you are, surrounded by these pictures that had never been in England before. And so it's that sort of magic that we try to create. So the second gallery was particularly important, and I'm particularly pleased with, because it works, I think, rather well. Um, the Mantegna's Triumph of Caesar were very lucky that the, um, the Queen has agreed to lend them all nine of them. They've never been shown... Um, outside Hampton Court, all nine of them. They've only been lent as a series once to the R RA in 1992, um, but we only had eight. This time we have all nine. Um, we, have one, we then have a sequence of rooms where we show pictures by school. We have one room devoted to the Northern Renaissance. Holbein, of course, very important because he had come to England as a court artist 100 years before Van Dyck. So we have one room with one wall with beautiful portraits by, by Holbein. Um, we have two Italian Renaissance galleries with the Sapa et Mares um, at the, at the, in the centre of one of the galleries and um, Tintoretto's beautiful um, uh, picture um, of Esther uh, before uh, um, Ahasuerus um, uh, from, the old, from the old story from the Old Testament, um, the centrepiece in the, in the other gallery. Um, right in the heart, we decided to paint it red, the only gallery that looks different from the others, uh, so you understand it's sort of the centre of the exhibition. Um, uh, are all the royal portraits. Um, there in the centre is the great piece, and then in central hall, the two equestrians um, and, and La Chasse, Charles I in the hunting field. So the idea is that in the heart of the exhibitions are the portrait of Charles I, and then the pictures that he collected are all, all around. Um, another important figure in the exhibition is Henrietta Maria. Um, this portrait from, comes from Washington, uh, and there's one uh, gallery. That where we show um, pictures that she had in her palaces in the, in the, um, in the Queen's house. Orazio Gentileschi was the important contemporary Italian artist working at the court here who worked largely for her. A um, bit of a discovery is this picture from the National Gallery, but it has been in store for, for years and years. Um, this is, we think, very much by Guido Reni. It was um, very dirty and had been completely neglected, a picture that had come from uh, the Gonzaga, from Mantua, um, and it's all documented, and it was in the sale. I forget the price, but this was the most, I think it was just something like 200, 250 pounds, most expensive contemporary picture in the collection of Charles I. Caravaggio's Death of the Virgin, now at the Louvre, um, which someone has sort of complained, one of the critics said, well, this isn't in the exhibition, so the exhibition isn't any good. The Caravaggio sold, I think, for 150 pounds, and this for, for 200 pounds, I think. This was the most expensive. And it was clean for this exhibition, um, and we now see it in all its splendor. Um, uh, we're very excited um, by this picture. Um, we then have one gallery devoted to the cabinet, which was sort of the, um, the inner sanctum of the collection, right at Whitehall in the, in the, um, in the 
king's private apartment um, with these miniature copies, um, which were very, very highly sought after at the time, um, um, cost almost as much as, as the real pictures. Um, and you see, this is here's the they're called limnings. They're like miniatures, but you know, of the of the pictures in the collection, not the ancestors anymore, or the you know, these are not dynastic portraits. These are now the pictures in the collection, um, made in the same technique. Um, this is the picture that I showed you earlier, Correggio's um, School of Love, which is also in the exhibition. Um, we have one room full of tapestries um, that were made after Raphael's cartoons, which were, um, which again, one of my f- favourite rooms in the exhibition, um, four of these tapestries that were made throughout the 1630s. The only other set... Um, uh, uh, um, apart from Raphael's, from the original set in the Sistine Chapel, which was made from the original cartoons. Um, and this is the most extraordinary set of tapestries ever made in England. And, um, and they're, they're now at the um, National Tapestry Museum in Paris. Um, they used to belong, they end up in the Royal Collection, Louis XIV owned them, and they come again, come back here for the first time. Um, I think they're very special. And then I think it's the last gallery. Oh, in the last gallery, we end. Uh, so we had to end our story. Um, how do you end the story? And um, we thought we ended with Van Dyck, who dies in '41, um, and uh, you know, and then the Civil War breaks out, and and Charles really stops collecting. It really is sort of the end of his activity as a collector. So with this beautiful portrait, the last um, one of the last pictures, the last self-portrait that Van Dyck paints, um, and we show it next to this sketch. Um, it's very difficult to see. It's much easier in the, when you can walk up close. We show it right next to of, um, a sketch that Van Dyck made, again, towards the end of his life, um, for probably a tapestry in Banqueting House of a procession of the Order of the Garter. And you see the canopy here, and underneath, there he is, Charles I. And we quite like the fact that we end on the portrait of Van Dyck, this scale, and then the king is next to him in miniature. Um, and there are two pictures that we end on, to the um, sort of pinnacle for me, I mean, the, of the... Um, um, you know, maybe the picture that proves more than any other that it did matter that these pictures were here. This is the only mythological painting that Van Dyck paints. He had become first and foremost a portraitist in England, not only for the for Charles I, but for other aristocrats as well. This is the um, the only mythological picture to survive, and it is stunningly beautiful. And um, and it, 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 there's a lot of Titian in this picture. And both in sort of in, in detail in the motif, but also in his brush strokes. And he would have one of the main reasons why Van Dyck would have come to cold, rainy, and grey London would have been because of um, this extraordinary collection of Titians, um, maybe one of the biggest collections of Titians in one place outside of Italy, uh, or possibly not even outside of Italy. Um, uh, the only one that sort of the the other place would have been Madrid, where you could see that many and high-quality Titians together. And that would have been one of the reasons why Van Dyck came here. And then eventually he creates this history painting um, very much in the, in the shadows of, of, of Titian. That's what he wanted. He, he wanted to paint more of these. And he... Um, um, yeah, so, we, so, so this is our sort of end point. But the very last picture in the exhibition is this um, painting that Rubens had painted, um, thinking back, remembering his time in... Uh, in England, so he was here in 1629 to 30, and then goes back to Antwerp. He had started working on this picture, and then keeps working on it. And Charles eventually acquires it, I think, in 1635. And it shows. Um, uh, it, it is not a portrait, of course. It is a, um, a picture showing um, Saint George and the Dragon, very appropriately. You know, subject matter: Saint George, patron saint of England, the Order of the Garter. Saint George crucial in the in the. Um, imagery of, 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 of English monarchs. Uh, in the background you see the river, clearly the Thames, Lambeth Palace here in the background. Um, he stayed at York House Rubens, which is now the embankment and if you would have looked down the Thames, that's exactly the view he would have had. Um, and, but most notably the um, St George in the picture looks suspiciously like Charles I. And that of course isn't a coincidence, so we thought it was quite nice. The last thing that Charles I would have seen um, before he was executed outside Banqueting House, he would have looked up and he would have walked along underneath the ceiling that Rubens had painted, um, uh, uh, you know, celebrating the reign of his father, the ceiling that he, Charles I, had commissioned 20 years earlier. Um, but here in this picture, sort of we, we show um, sort of Charles 
and, and we didn't want to show him as a martyr, and we wanted to stay away from all of that. This is not an exhibition trying to glorify Charles I or to, um, you know, um, we, we're not here to um, rewrite history and, and to, um, we're looking at the pictures, and we, and we quite liked him entering the realm of his pictures, so to become one of the protagonists, as it were, in that pictorial world of, uh, of art. Thank you very much. And we have, I, I am happy to answer questions. Yes. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. I know you can't fully answer this, but can you just say a little bit more about how much is known about how he collected? Because I noticed there was one painting in the exhibition where the label says he, he swapped it with someone else, uh, which is this kind of thing you imagine little boys doing with yeah. cards. Yeah. Cards. Yeah. So, ha do you know very much about how he went about collecting? Um, uh, we know a little bit. Um, we know, for example, that the Holbein drawings that we very proudly show in, in the cabinet room, um, he had a whole album of, of Holbein drawings, um, stunningly beautiful drawings, which he decided to give away um, and to, uh, um, to the Earl of Pembroke, who in return gave him a little painting by Raphael, uh, of St. George and the Dragon. Um, that painting is now in Washington. I went to Washington, asked for it, couldn't come. <laughs> it's a little work on pan, which is absolutely kind of travel. I understood. But um, uh, so, so there was a bit of, yes, it, it is a bit, I mean, as any collector, you know, I mean, there's a bit of, it's a bit like little boys trying, you know, to get your hands on wherever the opportunity arises. Um, he, uh, you know, he spent lots of money. He acquired the Gonzaga collection at vast expense. Um, uh, so there was that. There were other dealers that he worked with. There were um, agents travelling across the continent trying to source pictures. Very difficult to find these works. Um, th there was a bit of swapping going on, yes. So he gave um, a, a statue now, a sculpture now at the, um, at the V&A of um, Samson. He, he was given in Spain. He gave to Buckingham, who he had travelled with. So there was a lot of sort of, you know, the, uh, uh, exchange going back and forth. Um, what else? Um, the Earl of Arundel um, gave him... I mean, a lot of, some of these pictures were presented to the king. The Earl of Arundel, um, the, the, most of the Holbeins in the collection um, came from the Earl of Arundel. They weren't actually in the royal collection anymore. And he realised there was a gap that he had to fill, um, that Holbein had worked you know, at, in, in England, and, and, but that um, he, he needed you know, to close the gap and sort of you know, have a... Um, and, well, I think, yes, a strategy, but also, you know, um, opportunity. And, and um, so, that, you know, it's, it's taste is important, and, but it also is important to have the money to spend on it and to know, you know, when and where opportunities arise. And then you have to be there. And, to, and there were um, other collectors, Duke of Buckingham, but also the Earl of Arundel, who was a bit older than Charles and Buckingham, who was very sophisticated and who collected antique sculpture, travelled to Italy, spoke Italian, he collected drawings, you know, very sophisticated um, taste. And, and Charles was a bit different. Um, he, he collected more, you know, it was, it was more representative of the general taste of the times, um, didn't really do antiquity or drawings, you know, that was not really the, his target so much so that he gave away his Holbein drawings. They then end up the Earl of Pembroke and gives them to Arundel, who eventually gives it back. And so they end up again in the royal collection. Um, so there's a lot, you know, some of these have a quite sort of complex um, history. But, no, I think it's a bit of, um, a bit of everything. And, 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 but the, the extraordinary thing was that he um, managed to acquire so many works of such a high quality in such a short period of time, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years, in the 1620s and 30s. And um, to create a collection that rivaled those, you know, in, in, in the, the one in Madrid that he had seen and that he was trying to emulate. And um, that only in two decades. And that was, it was rather extraordinary. But that was also because he, he was the king of England. And he, there was a lot of money that he... Um, uh, that he spent on it. And so I think in the 1630s, word had got out that, you know, he was the one who, you know, if you had his picture to sell, uh, he, he, he was the person to go to. Um, you, you've stressed the, uh, the importance and the impact of Charles's visit to Madrid in terms of developing his, his, his collecting taste. Um, 
What do you think the influence for his elder brother's collection was on him, if any? I always stress that he grew up in a very sophisticated environment, Charles I. Um, his father, James, worked very closely with Inigo Jones and um, you know, commissioned Inigo Jones to build banqueting house and you know, eventually Inigo Jones built the Queen's house. Um, they had all the court masks. They had you know, a lot of tapestries around. It wasn't that um, it, 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 uh, the arts weren't important. They were hugely important. But on a, it was the type of the, these pictures, these monumental and very Catholic pictures that then arrived. I think Henry was very important, very influential. I think he dearly loved his brother. Um, uh, Henry had started putting together, on a much sort of more um, refined and smaller scale, um, he started putting together a cabinet room um, at St. James's Palace where he lived, which then Charles I continued, eventually moved from St. James's to Whitehall, kept acquiring more and more works for the cabinet, which became sort of the epicenter of the... And we, that's why we have one gallery in the exhibition... Um, which was so important um, uh, at the time, I think, and tells us a lot about how much they cared about these objects. They weren't only images of power. They, they actually cared about these pictures. And you see that more than anywhere in the cabinet. And the cabinet was really something that Henry had started. And there is one um, bronze uh, horse, a little statuette of a horse, in the exhibition, in the cabinet room, um, now in the Royal Collection, which um, was by, by Tucker, by an um, Italian artist, which... Um, who had worked with John Bologna. Um, and uh, the legend goes that um, uh, Henry was particularly fond of this horse, and Charles knew it. And when Henry was dying, Charles went to him and brought him the horse and gave him this bronze horse. Um, so, no, I think he would have been... He was very influential. Um, and so I think the great legacy, his greatest, Henry's greatest legacy, is sort of the cabinet. And that's what we decided in the catalogue. We always have sort of a, an image, sort of a... Um, title image leading into the chapter, we actually chose a miniature of, of Henry, Prince of Wales, because it's sort of his legacy that, that lives um, in, in, the, in the cabinet, I think. You mentioned the sale of, of all of uh, Charles I's uh, art. How did it happen that half of what he owns is still in the royal collection? I mean, did were, royalists buy it in anticipation of a restoration, or did the no, future um, monarchs buy them back? Very, I mean, on the sale, very, very quickly, maybe on the sale, because, of course, there's a hugely interesting uh, and unique sort of event and hugely interesting story. Um, it is not what the exhibition is about, but, of course, it, you know, I mean, you ha you know it, it's, it's a crucial part of it. So these pictures were... Um, there was an inventory was made, values had to be um, come up with, um, and um, so by the end of 1649, the year that he was um, uh, executed uh, on the 30th of January, um, uh, by the autumn, um, these pictures were on display. It wasn't an auction. They were on display in the royal palaces. The most important one was Somerset House, old Somerset House, and so you could have made an appointment and go, you could have gone to look at these works. They had a price tag attached to them, so, and they were all hugely expensive, um, and, and so a lot of these pictures didn't sell straight away. Uh, and in fact, I think we only have four pictures in the exhibition that actually sold in, in, in 1649. And some of the best pictures, which of course were the exp even more expensive ones, um, they were there for years. And they, they, you know, it was very hard to find anybody to actually buy them. And, and so the sale then continued. Most pictures were sold in 50, 51, still in 52. And they then realized they had to sort of bring this to a close. And, um, and they um, then started giving pictures instead of payments for outstanding bills. So that's why a lot of these pictures, you know, um, Bassano's flood ended up with the, with the plumber, with the royal plumber. And, you know, so they, they started giving these pictures as, as payments. They just wanted to sort of disperse, of the, you know, get rid of this collection. And all the pictures, and you would think that the Titians were, and the Raphael, they were bought up straight away by the Spanish and French. They weren't. They were sitting here for years and years. And they were then given, they're usually all given to... Um, uh, uh, you know, always the same sort of usual suspects and, and dividends. They had sort of groups of people who, who were then meant to distribute these pictures. And they then eventually, um, in 52, 53, and they then knew, you know, that in Spain and France, they knew what these pictures really were and they were then sold there. So um, by the time the monarchy was reinstated in 1660, um, uh, there was a, um, Charles II issued a, a, an invitation for everyone voluntarily to return 
the pictures formerly in his father's collection. And everybody, all the pictures that were still in the country, um, I think without exception, were all returned. Uh, you didn't want the you know, king of England to find out that you had a Van Dyck portrait of his father over your mantelpiece. Um, the pictures that had left the country never came back. And so, um, um, you yeah, know, for, for obvious reasons. So, um, and, and that's why, and, and the most important places where they ended up were the Louvre, the Prado, a bit in Vienna at the Kunstostorisch Museum. Um, but then the pictures uh, now at the National Gallery, they were also not in the country at the time. They returned to England later and then um, ended up uh, in the National Gallery. One more, last question. Yes. Uh, the uh, Sazenaka in the Kunsthistorisches yeah. of Charles V, yeah. was it a contemporary copy of the Titian or what? No, the other way around. So we, um, let's see if we can quickly find the... So the Titian portrait that I showed to you... Uh, see if I we find... thought the Sazenaka was first. The Sazenaka was first. No. So the, um, the, um, Charles V commissioned... Uh, in Bologna, I think, at the time, co- commissioned Titian. Oh, here it is. So this is the, the portrait um, by Titian, painted in 1633, of Charles V. There's another portrait, identical in, um, uh, in, in, in composition of Charles V, by an artist called Zeisenegger, which is now in Vienna. Um, and it was long believed to be that, of course, Titian painted the original and then Zeisenegger painted a copy. We now think it was actually the other way around, that Charles had a picture by Zeisenegger. He asked Titian to improve, improve it, and he, and he was so fond of it um, that he then made him his court artist, and he would then work for Charles V and his son, Philip II. And, um, and, and, yeah. and so this is the second version of the two. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.